0: Amen. That's a fun act to follow, huh? Um, Vu said it didn't get easier. It doesn't get any easier. (laughs) But um, I'm so grateful for Vu. I'm grateful for um, his friendship. Vu is one of the the first people who I felt really welcomed me into this church. Um, I'm so proud of him. think God's so incredible that when, when other people go through stuff, it blesses us. It's kind of crazy and, and, and wonderful at the same time to remember that our God who, who redeems is our God who's our God, and he's there for us. I'm going to try to get myself together. <laughs> I did better the first service. All right. we're going to cry through it. Oh, continuing our lessons on David, apparently. Um, continue this series of After God's Own Heart, Lessons from the Life of David. One of the things I've especially enjoyed is that David is this very known character. Um, the Old Testament, I think, has about 66 chapters dedicated to him. Um, New Testament writers always talk about him and, and how impactful he is. To this day, Israel still holds him as their greatest king. Um, the symbol of Judaism is still the star of David. Jerusalem is still called the city of David. Um, David is a person who who we all have stories about. But I think what I've enjoyed more than anything else about David is that he's very much human. That yes, he was a man after God's own heart, but he stumbled. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart who loved God, but he wasn't perfect. But I love how his heart shows up and I love how human he was. And it reminds us that this human person who fails so much is still loved by God. That where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So David's story then is very much our own, isn't it? As we go through this life of David, may we be reminded, as David often was, that God is the hero of the story. God is the hero of David's story, and he's the hero of ours too. Let's pray together. Our Father, God, we thank you indeed that you're wonderful. We thank you that you're faithful. We thank you that you're merciful. We thank you that you're good. Our good God, our merciful God, our faithful God, our true God. We thank you now for your blessing upon us. We thank you now for this chance to revisit the life of David. God, open our hearts and minds, help us to hear what you have to say, and help us to be moved and changed. Thank you so much that you're the God who's good and a God who's always merciful. Help us to always choose to fall in your arms. In your holy and precious name, amen? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Samuel 24. I'll be reading the first 17 verses. We'll also have it available up front. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba to enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply your troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord want to do such a thing? The king's word, however overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aror, south of the town in the gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead and the region of Tatim and on to Danjan and around Sidon. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. David was constant stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord said. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, shall there come on you three years of famine in your land? or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent the plague on Israel from that morning until the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the city of David, the Lord relented. Concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, "'Enough! Withdraw your hand!' The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, "'I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done?' Let your hand fall on me and my family. So 2 Samuel 24 wraps up the books of Samuel. First and Second Samuel ends there. And it wraps up the story of the life of David. This is the end of David's chapter. But really? Like, this is how we choose to end David? David, this is how we're going to end him. We didn't choose to end it on 2 Samuel 22, which personally, I think that would have been a good place to end, right? In Second Samuel 22... David sings about God's praises. He sings about Yahweh's praises. David says beautiful things like, God is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. God is my refuge and strength. God is the one who protects me. God is the one who always sees me through the dark night of the soul. When I'm on run from my enemies, God is with me. God is the Lord of the world, but he's also my personal God. He's the hero of my story. Me, that would have been a great place to end, David, right? Sum up his whole life by saying, God is the hero of the story. Thank God for this beautiful life I've lived. Praise God. Let's sing this song forever in Israel. That's a good place to end. But that's not where the story ends could have gone on to the next chapter and ended in perhaps in 2 Samuel 23, which begins with David's last words, you know? Like he's on his deathbed and these are his last words. That's also probably a good place to end, right? When he's going through his whole life and reflecting on everything that's been, David holds on to this truth. He says, God so loved me. He loved me with his promises. I trusted his promises and they're good and they're true. God loved me with a covenant love. Every promise he made to me came through. Everything I wanted, he gave me more. God so loved me, he promised that my son would rule and that generations from now, the Messiah of the world will come from my line. God loves me. That's also a really good place to end the story of David. You know, and if that wasn't good enough, David then does something that I think is beautiful. You know, God is faithful and he's faithful to God. But after he gives his last words, David gives his roll call, his honor roll, if you will. David gives shout outs to to, the many people put together that they call them the mighty men of David. But what I love about this is in the ancient Near East, the, the culture that David lived in, kings got credit for everything. You know, it's not unlike our culture. You know, if you follow football, for example, like they blame the quarterback for everything, even though there's 52 people on the roster, right? But it's the same thing, you know? If I were most cynical, I'd say you blame the pastor for everything, but y'all never do that, so we're good. We're covered, right? We're covered. But in that culture... The, the king takes credit for everything. So the, the guys could be, in, they could be in a war for nine months, right? And after they conquer, they better call the king to claim the victory because he's the king. So even when the kings listed the roll call, it was more like, well, then I, I, I conquered Tyre, I conquered Sidon, I conquered the land of Canaan. I, 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 I. But what I love about David here is his Humility. He sits back and he remembers these men who've been with him for decades of his life. People who've been with him when he was an outlaw on the run. People who've been with him in the caves. People who've been with him when he had no power at all. People who saw God in his life and say, I will stand by you. And it's this beautiful reminder to us that we don't need to wait till our deathbed to tell the people around us thank you. Because this morning, all of us in this room are only here because of the God who saves and the people who've invested in us. That's why we're here this morning. So it's beautiful that in this culture where it's all about king, 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 David says, nah, man, these are the people who were with me. They prayed for me. They fought for me. They protected me. And in that list, there's a bunch of just mighty men and and all these beautiful acts they do. But I want to tell you about two of my favorites. The first one is one of those guys who you can't gloss over. I think it's impossible to gloss over. A lot of times we see in the Bible there's a bunch of names, you know, you just try to read as quick as you can, you know. It's just like, you just go, right? But this guy, you can't gloss over him. His name is Benaiah. And the reason you can't gloss over Benaiah is David's little note about him was, Benaiah <laughs> chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day and killed it. Can't really gloss over that one. You know? It's just like, wait, let me get this right. You are a man that is a lion. Man goes man, lion goes roar. You don't win this battle. That's the first thing about this guy, Benaya. The second one is, who decides, you know what, the lion's going into a pit, I got him now, right? Like, it's one thing to be like, let me run and hope it doesn't ignore me, but is like, ooh, I got him cornered. He's in the, and if that wasn't enough, it's snowing. Now, I don't know about you, if you ever try to run in snow, it's a little bit difficult, you know? So, We're going after a lion, strike one. We're going into a cave after a lion, strike two. We're going to a cave after a lion. When there's snow on the ground, we can't run, strike three. But Benaiah slayed them. It's one of my favorites, right? It's beautiful. But the other one in this list that is very, very interesting is Uriah the Hittite. Of all the people David listed, not only would the ancient Near Eastern kings always give themselves the credit, David does two things here that's significant. Even in talking about these people who've been faithful to him and loyal to him, he says, and God gave them the victory, and God gave them the victory, and God gave them the victory. Because to David, and hopefully to us, God's always the hero of the story. But when he's listing the name, just like it's easy to forget, except Benaiah, it's easy to forget all these lists of people, he chooses to put Uriah last. And I don't think that's a a, a diss to Uriah or a disrespect even. You know what that is? That is honor. Because David says, you might gloss over everyone. And you might remember the last guy I say, and that last guy is Uriah the Hittite. And David sinned greatly against Bathsheba, sinned greatly against God, sinned greatly against Uriah the Hittite. But here he seeks reconciliation to honor Uriah by saying, you have been faithful to Israel. You have been faithful to me. You were faithful even unto death, and I'm grateful to God for you. That's David's heart, isn't it? Even after his great sin, when he looks upon his life, he's like, remember Uriah and his faithfulness. So I think that's a great place to end. The end of your life, you're like, you know what? God's good. He's been amazing. But thank God for Benaiah. He's a little wild, but we like him. Thank God for Uriah. He's faithful. Thank God for these guys who took on the whole Philistines, you know. David just ends here with, thank God for the people around me. And it's beautiful. You know, as Anabaptists, we love community. It's beautiful when you take it off the individual and bless the whole community. We could have ended the story there, and I would have been cool. Like, you know what? Yeah, we can sing songs to God because he's good. We can give you your last words. Or we can just thank God for the community around me. It would have been great. But no, the writer of Samuel chooses to end with this census, this census that begins very, very hard for us. The very first sentence in um, this passage says what? Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and incited David against them? That's hard. The first question you might ask is, why is God angry at Israel? You know, and there's been a lot of people who've waxed poetic and they have all these different reasons why God's angry at Israel. You know what I do in situations like this? Two things. One, I realize I never want to ask God why he's angry at me because, you know, I always need grace. You know, there's, there's never a point in life where I'm like, God isn't good and I don't need to hold on to his mercy. But the second thing I think is real important here is that sometimes the easy answer is the right answer. One of my, 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 my childhood friends, um, Takuma, I don't know if I've told this story before, um, he passed away last year, so I was thinking of him this morning and this week, um, and he was, he was in class years ago, and it was for a mentally gifted class, and, and the, the question before him was, what's the purpose of a stamp? And Takuma, and one reason we got along is because we're both, you know, we live in our heads, you know? So he sat there for an hour just looking at the stamp because he's like, they're trying to trick me. They're trying to get me. I don't know what the purpose they're trying to get at, but there's something in here. And after an hour, he just quit. And the people finally come back in. And they're like, what's the purpose of a stamp? He's like, to mail a letter? And they're like, correct, you got it, you know? And he was just like, I hate you all, right? (laughs) But it's this great reminder that sometimes the easy answer is the right answer. Why is God angry at Israel? We don't know. The text does not say. And even greater than that, that's okay. Because the writer of Samuel doesn't want to focus on God's anger here. He wants to focus on God's mercy. He wants to focus on David. And this is the story of David. And he's going to say, this is how we're going to end the life of David. That's the focus. The focus isn't on God's anger. But if the focus is on David, what is exactly David's sin? I mean, first of all, we got God could be angry at him and he's inciting him. But what is David's sin? Now, when I first read this story years ago, I thought about census. And listen, we're all products of our environment. You know, we're all children of our environment. And one of the things I did when I hear census, I think about it in an American lens. You know, when we do a census, it's a population census. At least that's what they tell us, right? It's a population census, and we know how many people are here we think are here, right? In that culture, though, census wasn't about the population. It was actually for military purposes. When you took the census, remember, this is also the culture that what they do in the springs? Kings go to war. So if you're going to go to war every single spring, it's good to know how many you got in the numbers, right? So David is setting something up here for military purposes. Now, what's, what's interesting to me is this is a far cry from the David we met. The David we met in the very beginning when he fought Goliath. Remember what he said when he went going into this battle with the Philistine giant? All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. That's young David. Now old David is like, well, how many people would die for me tomorrow? Let's find out. Yeah. I remember Jonathan, who's David's best friend. I, I think of him as David's mentor, the one who really showed him the faith and showed him how to be a ruler, how to rule and how to lead. Jonathan one time looked at his few men around him, and I think it was just him and his sword bearer, and he says, you know what, we're going to go into the Philistine land because God wants us to do this, and we're going to have victory. And you can see everybody around him like, but there's only two of you. You know, that's like a battalion, you know? And this is what Jonathan says. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. David knew that. He would have known that story. Yet now David is counting the people for military purposes. What is David's sin? There's a shift that has happened here. And the shift is that David has taken his trust from God to now placing it in himself. The lack of faith in the God who saves is an astounding statement against David here. David's whole life is about God saving him. David's whole life is about God delivering him, about God being faithful, about God being merciful, about God being true. But this is a reminder to us that it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 10 minutes or 70 years. It doesn't matter if you just met Jesus yesterday or you've been walking with him for a few decades. The flesh is always the flesh. And when you take your eyes off of Jesus, it's wild the road you can end up because when sin becomes your God and sin becomes your leader, you only lead to destruction. When David takes his eyes off of God, he looks at himself. Instead of saying, praise God, from whom all blessings flow, he says, praise me because I got people who would die for me tomorrow. 1.3 million of them. David has gone from trust in God who called him when he was no one, who delivered him from the pit, who saved him from his enemies, who took him behind enemy lines multiple times, who saved his life five times in one chapter we read earlier. David has forgotten his whole resume of what God has done for him. And it's a reminder to us because it's easy to forget what God has done when we're living for what we want. It's easy to forget God's resume and his faithfulness when it's all about me. So David forgets this lesson. I hope we all never forget this morning. God alone is worthy of our trust. Amen? God alone is worthy of our trust. But then you got to come back to the beginning, though. Does God cause David to sin? Because it's still heading out back there. Again, we read it in the very beginning. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Okay, that's fine. He's mad at Israel. We don't know why. And he incited David against them. So how can God incite David to do something and then get mad at him for doing it? Right? Well, I think there's a little help here we can get. I think the help comes going back to the day of uh, David and Bathsheba again. Remember when we talked about David and Bathsheba, we read James, the brother of Jesus, who once said this, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it's full grown, gives birth to death. You know, I think it's very easy. Actually, I would prefer this. I think it's very easy to be like, well, God made him do it. Because that's an easy way for me to get through life. Hank, why'd you mess up? Well, God made me do it. You know, like he he caused me to do it. To me, that's very easy. What's harder in this passage and what James tries to remind us, that it's not God who tempts you. It's not God who leads you to do evil. But that God so loves you and he so values choice and freedom for you That God gives you the ability to choose to deny him. And this story isn't about God causing David to cause the census. It's more about God saying, you know what, David? I'm going to give you to your own desires. And to me, that's a terrifying proposition. It's terrifying. It's so much easier for me to be like, well, God made me do it it's a lot harder for me to realize that if I'm so stubborn, if I'm so set on my sin, God will say, you know what? I'm going to let you do you, and then we'll see. It's very frightening to me. Asaph, who was a contemporary musician in the time of David, he once said in Psalm 81, 12, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. David's temptation about his pride and how many people loved him and would die for him, it grew and the desire grew within him and it leads to this great sin because his eyes are off of God who provided, who protected, who led him through and his eyes are now on himself, on his throne thrown on high, and how many people would die for him? God let David succumb to his own desires. And to me, that's a terrible place to be. The census is less about God doing and inciting David and more about God saying, go ahead if you will. You know, one commenter said, it's like this, you know. Some of you have to use imaginations. Maybe you have siblings, you've had uh, maybe coworkers, maybe spouses, right? You got to use your imagination. But sometimes someone's warning you against doing something and they tell you not to do it, but you're just stubborn and you're set in it, you know. So for example, you know, your wife, and again, this is just imagination, so go with me. Your wife might say something to you like, you know, don't eat the dessert it's for company coming over tomorrow and you might be like you know what I'm just gonna eat the dessert and you know what she says well fine go ahead and you know what you better not eat the dessert <laughs> I learned this the hard way this doesn't happen in my marriage now because I learned this when I was younger you know my mom said the same thing you know like I don't have to use my imagination this really happened my mom said hey oh uh, yeah the cookies are for people coming over later and I was just like why big cookies except to eat them. Like, I don't understand this whole saving thing, you know? And I went in, I, I looked her dead in the eye. I was brave. I looked her dead in the eye, I picked up the cookie, I took a bite of that. I was just like, so what you going to do, you know? And my culture is a little bit different than yours. So I would just say that I paid dearly. Um, I would just say that it was, there was no violence, because we don't believe in violence in our culture, but it was pain. So interpret that how you will. Interpret that how you will. So this census is less about God causing David to sin and God saying, you know what, man, if your eyes are off of me, if you're no longer trusting me, if you want to hold on to yourself, I'm going to give you into your own desires. And God tries to help him. Joab, you know, when David lists all those mighty men, he doesn't list his commander in chief. David and Joab, I feel like that's another sermon series. It's just, it's interesting about just the tension they live in, right? Right joab doesn't get listed as one of the mighty men joab actually eventually turns on david and and leads an insurrection against one of like when david chooses the anointed to follow him joab tries to lead a coup right so to say they didn't get along was an understatement but joab is the voice of reason and it's just it's fascinating to me that of all the people god sends joab and says david what are you doing like, why would you do such a thing? I hope God blesses you a hundred times over. May the eyes of the Lord, see when you see great things that God's given you, but why do you want to do such a thing? But what we also forget that it wasn't just Joab. God sent Joab and the commanders of the army, so everybody knew we're supposed to trust God. And they go before David and said, David, we're supposed to trust God. What are you doing? And David still ignores them. And after the fact they go nine months and, and, and two days or nine months and I think a couple weeks, and they come back and they have eight hundred thousand in Israel, five hundred thousand in Judah, one point three million people. And David, instead of being, you know I me, mean? I look out and I did it the first service. You guys are, you know, second service. So the first service I saw like five or ten people I think who'd be willing to die for me. You guys have like ten or twelve, so you're doing better, right? You're doing better, right? But I'm just saying, if I knew that 1.3 million people would die for me tomorrow, I would feel great about myself. You know, I'd be like, you know what, I'm good. (laughs) You know, like I can go through this life in 1.3. That's a lot of people to get to before they get to me. So you can see how after all this count, David should be, should be very excited. He did his count. He saw how powerful his people are, but then David's heart shows up. And when the count comes and he's doing the numbers, it finally hits him. He's conscious stricken that he counted these fighting men. And he says what? I have seen greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. This is the second time in David's story that his heart just overwhelmed him. The first time was when David was on the run from Saul. He did that a lot. And he actually got close enough that he could even kill Saul. And instead of releasing him and letting him go like he had been doing, he cuts off a hem of his robe. And he cuts off a hem of the robe to show Saul, like, yeah, I could have killed you. But then his heart shows up. And God reminds him, David, I don't want you to be the king that takes. I want you to be the king that receives my blessings. I don't want you to be the king that takes advantage and, 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 and wins this kingdom through warfare. I want you to win this kingdom through trusting me. And now David's heart shows up. And what's beautiful about this passage, you see growth in David. So yes, we might grow older and sin will always be a problem. We got to keep fighting it. But you see growth in David and it's beautiful. When Bathsheba happens, David went a whole year ignoring his sin. And it wasn't until the prophet shows up and says, David, you're that man that his eyes are open, but now in the midst of a sin, David cries out right there and says, God, I've sinned greatly. That is growth. That is growth that David realizes in the moment that he's fallen short, in the moment he sinned against God. But we said last week that sin leads to death, and, and, and grace comes, but consequences come too. This is what sin does. And David knows there's punishment coming. Now, I challenged the first service and no one won, so good luck second service, you know. I'm going to say it like this. I think... This is the only time in the Bible that someone sins greatly against God and God gives them choices. But because there's going to be one or two of you who might find another chance, I'll say, this is one of the few times in the Bible that someone sins greatly and God gives them choices. And I think it shows you the mercy and how much God loved David. But I think it also shows you that God is asking the question. He asks all of us and will ask all of us every single day of my life. And that's simply this. Do you trust me now? tomorrow, do you still trust me now? A week from now, do you still trust me now? Seven years from now, do you still trust me today? That's the question of your life that God will always ask you no matter the situation, no matter where you are, what you're doing, where you're going. God's question for you will always be, do you trust me now? And God poses this question to David. And at first when I was a kid reading, I thought it was a riddle. But then I realized, oh no, they're all terrible choices. The first choice for David is what? Three years of famine. And David had known famine on the run. And you can see him maybe thinking through like three years of famine, people can't eat. How many thousands will die? Or three years of running from his enemies. David knew about running from his enemies. He's now not young anymore. You know, even his mighty men he listed, they're all not young anymore either. So David is thinking, I'm at the end of my life. Three months of running. But David makes the shift back to God, and he says, I'd rather fall into the hands of God and plead for God's mercy. And to me, that's beautiful. When God says to David, do you trust me now? David says, I've sinned greatly. There's going to be consequences. But if there's going to be consequences, I'm not going to put my hand and my life in the hands of man. I'd rather choose God. And I think it's beautiful, but it's also hard Because even though David knows that there's going to be consequences, he says, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into human hands. David learns a hard lesson that only God is worthy of our trust. And because of David's choosing God, the answer becomes a plague. And in this plague from Dan of Beersheba, 70,000 people die. And again, David has to live with his actions impacting the people around him. With David and Bathsheba, what we learn is that when we sin, we hurt God. When we sin, we hurt people close to us. With David in the census, we learn when we sin, the destruction for the world around us. God has created and chosen us to bring his shalom into the world. And when we sin, we go against God's shalom. And what David learns is this bitter lesson that my sin is going to lead to 70,000 burials and 70,000 innocent people are going to die for me messing up. Because our sin not only hurts God, it not only hurts the people close to us, it hurts the world around us. I think that's a good thing to remember because when we sin, we like to think of it in isolation or we like to forget that God exists, forget the people around us exist. But David census us, reminds us that God sees it. There will be consequences, but the consequences aren't just for you and they're going to be bad. They're also going to be for your world around you. So 70,000 people died. But David chose to fall in hands of God because he knew God was merciful. In the story, how many days was the plague supposed to go on? 3 Yet on the first day of the plague, when God and the angel has come down, the angel is about to destroy the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was David's crown, right? It was the city of David. To this day, it's called the city of David. The angel was going to destroy it, and God looks at it. And he looks at David and says, you know what? Stop. And the Bible says God relented. His mercy shows up, and God says, okay, David, I will stop. And next week, this is called a teaser. I was a marketing major, right? Next week, we'll find out why it's important, the moment, not just the moment, but the place that God decided to stop. It's a fun one. It's one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. You'll get it next week. But God stops. He relents. And the, 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 the plague stops. And, you know, what's fascinating to me in this story is that God stops because David repents. One of the things we forget as Christians is that God wants to forgive, that it's not about how many times you fall, because your God's always there to pick you back up. But what I love about our God is that His mercy is immediate. His forgiveness is right now. So many of us, we lie to ourselves, we lie to the people around us and say, "You know, if I do X, y and Z, then I'll be ready." And God says, "If you're ready right now, I'm ready for you. Today is the day of salvation. And David, at the moment he repents, God forgives him, and God picks him back up. And here's the beautiful thing about our God, that David, who's the chief sinner in our story, now becomes the chief intercessor for his people. That David, who was all about his selfishness and all about how proud and and powerful he was, now goes before God and says, God, save the people. It's me who sinned. It's a beautiful lesson that God teaches us here. And the lesson is simply this. Not only will I forgive you today, but if you're willing to get up and hold my hand, I will use you because you got work to do. Our world tells us we got to shimmy, we got to clean ourselves up. We got to make the right choices and do all these steps. And God says, yeah, 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 yeah. But today I'm ready for you. Today, I'm ready to use you. So when we say things like you're, you're greater or God in you is greater than the worst thing you've done, that we're sin abound and grace abound much more, that God has gifted you to share shalom to this world. We're not just using church speak. We're quoting our God who says, if you repent today, today is the day of your salvation. But today is also the day I'm ready to put you to work. So stop telling God you got to get ready. God's already ready. God's already ready for you to get to work. When you ask for forgiveness, God in this moment makes David the chief intercessor. God forgives and redeems David and uses David to be the intercessor. You know, in this whole story, there's so many lessons I think we get. For David, he learns yet again that, yes, God forgives our sins, but our sins have consequences. David learns that. David also learned a lesson I think it's important for all of us to hold on to. Live to honor God and not yourself. Live to honor God and not yourself. Every single day, wake up this morning and say, God, how can I honor you and not myself? God, how can I bring in your kingdom into my world and not build up my own fiefdom? I love using fiefdom and I only use it from the pulpit. So not build up my own fiefdom. Here's another one I think David learned that I think we have to hold on to. Our thanks to the giver of all gifts must be greater than our enjoyment of the gift. Our thanks to the giver of all gifts must be greater than our enjoyment of the gift. We're really good at enjoying the gift God's given us, but your thanks has to be greater than your enjoyment of the gift. And I'm not saying that's easy, that's very hard, but I think it's a worthy endeavor, don't you? Give thanks to the giver. Give thanks to the giver. And David also learns, God alone is worthy of my trust. So what do we learn from this? If that's all that David held on to, what do we learn from this? Well, we said what James, the brother of Jesus, helps us know, and it starts with thoughts. And thoughts get enticed, and they lead to temptation, and temptation gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. So what do we have to do? 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says this. Or 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, 10.5b. We have to make every thought captive. The Greek word that's used there is speaking specifically for the mind because, you know, most of us, who grew up in the church, we know like we have to, you know, be on guard for the devil, be on guard for the devil. And the place we don't guard the most is our mind. And that's where he wants to enter in. So what we do with this was simply this, right? Make every thought captive. How David's pride starts is in one thought of like, I could be great or how great am I? When these thoughts go into your mind, so many of us as Christians are, are so embarrassed by the bad thoughts we have. You know what you need to do better than being embarrassed? You need to give that thought to God right then and there. Because you need to say, God, this just happened in my mind. I need you to destroy it right now. Because here's the thing if God doesn't help you destroy that thought right now, it's going to destroy you. Because that thought is going to grow to temptation, it's going to grow to desire, it's going to grow to sin, and it's going to lead to death. You have to make every thought captive. The second one is simply this humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Stay humble or God will humble you. Because if the scripture says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up, that means the opposite is probably also true. That if you're not humble in the sight of the Lord, he's not going to lift you up. He might even knock you from your high horse. Stay humble before the Lord or he will humble you. The third thing I love about this is, you know, is it scary to think that God is going to, give us over to our sins. Remember in this story, what we said that even though God gives David over to his sin of pride, God still sends help. And it came from someone that David might not have expected. And it's easy. And most of the commenters are like, yeah, God sent Joab. And I'm like, but it says in the commanders like plural, right? God doesn't just try once to save David. And the Corinthian scripture does tell us, you know, God will always give us a way out. Even in his pride, God sends multiple people to David to say, stop what you're doing. And David doesn't listen. But to me, when I'm scared of the fact that God might let me, you know, give me over to my sin, I know that he provides a way out and that gives me hope. But I also know that God forgives. Because if today's the day of salvation, I repent today, God forgives immediately. And this is what I love about our God, that when we forgive immediately, he's ready to use us to work. God alone is worthy of our trust. So whether you're holding on to this morning with the past and the resume God's built for you, it's okay. He's worthy of it. Or whether you need God to be merciful right now because you're walking in darkness or you've been living too much for yourself, it's okay. God's merciful right now. But please know that our God who saves is our God who redeems, and our God who redeems is the God who desires to put you to work. I'd like to call up Pastor Estee and our worship team. We're going to end by singing a song that's pretty familiar to all of us. It's um, It is well, or well, to most of us, actually, who grew up in church anyway. It is well with my soul. But as we sing this song this morning, I want to invite you to just hold on to the mercy of God in a new way. Maybe you just need to sit home. Maybe you need to go home today and just make a list of the ways God's been faithful to you. I know for me that's healing to my soul. Because I'm so good at looking at myself, it's harder to look at God. So write it out on a piece of paper. Just thank God for the ways he's been faithful. Just write it all out and put it somewhere you can see it. Maybe on the fridge because I like to eat. That's what I do. It's true. But I also want you to hold on to God's mercy and know that if you're walking in darkness or if your life is characterized by living by yourself, God's merciful right now. So please cry out to him. And we can sing it as well with our soul because the God who is merciful is the God who loves you. Amen. I'd like to also invite up the intercessors, and any pastors in the room. We'd love to pray for you for anything. But as we sing this morning, let us celebrate our God who's good, our God who's merciful, our God who loves us. Let's sing together.